Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting October 1st, 2008. I'm Steve Mursky, and you're intelligent. My evidence is that you listen to this podcast. Well, Carl Zimmer is the author of an article in the October issue of Scientific American called The Search for Intelligence. The issue has numerous other fascinating articles. We'll talk with Editor-in-Chief John Rennie about some of those later. First up, though, Carl Zimmer. We talked after a public lecture he gave at the Stevens Institute of Technology in Hoboken, New Jersey. So, Carl, how are you other than, I know you have a cold, but you're looking all right. Uh, Other than the cold, I'm doing great. Thanks. So you've got this article in the uh, current Scientific American on intelligence, the search for intelligence. What, What really is intelligence? Well, there are a lot of different ways of testing intelligence. Uh, and you can find them on IQ tests and other kinds of tests, and they tend to correlate together so that people who score a certain way on one intelligence test will test similarly on another test. And so these scores kind of hang together. But in some ways, intelligence is like the famous Supreme Court ruling on obscenity. Right? It's hard to define, but you know it when you're around it. Yeah, we all have a sense of people who are really smart and people who aren't so smart. And it's true, we, we have this gut sense about it. And, you know, psychologists can actually um, turn that into a pretty solid statistical measure. And, you know, IQ scores are turn out to be very predictive in the sense that you can take someone's IQ score or SAT score and, and predict things about their lives. You can even predict how long they'll live. So there's something there about intelligence, but that doesn't tell you what it really is. Yeah. You you get into the search for intelligence genes. Now, this, this was a natural thing. As soon as we started to be able to figure out what genes were and what certain genes did, it became natural to look for the genes associated with intelligence. But that search has proven to be much more treacherous than probably the people in the field ever imagined. Yeah, that to me is the really fascinating part of this story. This isn't a really great um, success story in science. This is a story of science struggling on. Uh, So psychologists know that there's there's definitely a a genetic component to intelligence. There are lots and lots of studies on twins that show that, that identical twins tend to have the same intelligence, a closer score on intelligence tests than non-twins. These are even twins raised apart, separated at birth and raised in completely different environments. That's right. That's right. So this is a very strong result. It keeps coming up again and again. So you figure that at least some of the differences in people's intelligence scores has something to do with their genes. So, hey, let's go look in the genes. Well, it turns out that um, scientists are having a really, really hard time finding them, and what that tells us is that there are these genes that influence intelligence, but each particular gene is responsible for a tiny, tiny amount of the variation, like a fraction of 1%. So there are probably hundreds upon hundreds of genes that together produce these differences on intelligence tests. And there's one of the researchers you quote in the article talks about there may be genes that are not directly responsible for some aspect of brain function, even at a biochemical cascade level, there might be a gene that's responsible for the, the width of the birth canal, and that that could be associated with it ultimately with intelligence. 
what what scientists point out is that um, just because you find a gene that that correlates with intelligence doesn't mean that it's necessarily uh, doing something you think of as having anything to do with intelligence. So, for example, let's just say, for the sake of argument, that there's a gene that influences the width of the birth canal. And let's say that some versions of the gene leave women more likely to have trouble giving birth, and so that their children have a loss of oxygen. And that could lead to changes in the brain that lead to lower intelligence scores. Well, it's not really an intelligence gene that has anything to do with the brain. It just has to do with actually the mother. So it could be really complicated. And so even when scientists actually identify these intelligence genes, and they haven't really yet, but even when they do, that still doesn't necessarily tell us what those genes actually do for us. Yeah. Uh, so basically, we, we still don't know hardly anything about genes and intelligence. We, we, we do hardly know anything about, about genes that have to do with intelligence. And what's surprising is that this ignorance is taking place even when we have really sophisticated tools. So scientists can now use these so-called gene chips to scan people's DNA for hundreds of thousands of genes and different variants of genes. You'd think that if there were some big intelligence genes that these kinds of gene chips would catch them. You, you, you might imagine that this would be a done deal, but it's not. Even with this incredibly powerful technology that scientists have now, they're still coming up with these genes that may or may not have a tiny, tiny influence on intelligence. You know, in a, in a way, that's the result of a lot of genome studies on, on complex traits. So, like complex diseases like uh, diabetes or cancer, schizophrenia, they keep coming up with these same results. So, in a sense, we shouldn't be surprised that intelligence turns out to be so complex. But, uh, but it is a little frustrating. Some really interesting material in the article on brain imaging as a child grows from from uh, infancy into adolescence, really, and the thickness of parts of the brain. Let's talk about that and, and what that actually kind of ends up meaning. So there have been some scientists who have been um, keeping track of the development of children's brains. Um, year after year, they scan these kids, and they're also keeping track of other things, like do they develop schizophrenia? Um, they give them intelligence tests. They do all sorts of things to try to look at uh, whether there's a link between certain changes in the brain and things about human behavior. And so one scientist named Phil Shaw has been l looking at whether there's a difference in how the brains of children that score high on intelligence tests develop compared to children who score low. And it turns out there is. So the outer layer of the brain, the, the cerebral cortex, uh, gets thicker, faster in an intelligent kids, and then gets thinner compared to an average kid. And so this is a this is a distinct difference in how the brain is developing. Uh, the the problem is that it's very hard to know what that means <laughs> about the biology of intelligence. Right. So why why would that have anything to do with you doing well on an intelligence score? Uh, really, scientists have no clue. I mean, they're really just at the point of pinpointing real patterns that you can link to intelligence then the challenge becomes to say well how does a cause b and the, the thickness is 
networks of nerve cells joining together, and then the thinness is discarding of some of those connections when the when the brain figures out they don't need them. Yeah. So the so the the neurons are growing in the child's brain, and they're making more and more of these connections, and then they're cutting them back. So you know it's possible that they are cutting back these connections to produce a very efficient network. You know, so there's a lot of ideas about how intelligence might have something to do with speed, sort of mental speed. Mm-hmm. You know, if signals go back and forth around your brain really quickly, maybe that has something to do with intelligence. And so maybe what's happening is that um, these networks are, are being built for speed in kids who score high in intelligence tests. Again, total speculation, but that's the kind of stuff that scientists are thinking about now. There's, there's apparently some kind of balance in there between processing power and speed. And two different people who are equally intelligent, if you can even say such a thing and, and have it be meaningful, one might have a lot of processing power, one might have a lot of speed, but you, you, you wind up with the same result. Yeah, th- that's an, another interesting thing that comes out of uh, these brain studies. People who score high in intelligence tests, they don't all have the same brain. So some of them tend to have uh, well-developed connections between different regions of the brain, the sort of the white matter. You can think of sort of the, the cables connecting different processors in the brain. Now other people have certain parts of the cerebral cortex, the gray matter, that are well-developed, and those are like the processors. So in some cases, maybe, like you say, having uh, well-developed processors has something to do with intelligence, and maybe in other cases, having fast connections between different parts of the brain has something to do with it. You know, again, the patterns are there, and now it's a, the challenge is to make sense of them. So what's, what's next for this field? What are people going to be looking for? And why? What, why does it matter that we understand where intelligence comes from biologically? I think that one of the, the most promising things would be to identify children with particular learning disabilities. You could say, for example, if someone has a certain combination of a whole bunch of genes, that might make them more at risk of, for example, having trouble learning how to read. And so, in a sense, you know, ultimately what's going to have to happen is intelligence is going to have to be better understood as a whole bunch of different processes in the brain. But once scientists do that, they may be able to um, help uh, pinpoint the best ways to help people learn by understanding um, how intelligence develops in the brain. On the other hand, you know, some psychologists say, look, this is just interesting. I mean, it's just a fascinating fact that that we can measure this thing called intelligence. It has this incredible predictive power, and we still don't really have a clue what it is. And so they just want to understand it as a basic scientific question. You can read Carl's intelligent article online. Just go to www.siam.com slash siammag. Carl has a new book out all about, believe it or not, E. coli, many of which are swimming around in your gut right now. He'll be on again soon to talk about those usually beneficent bacteria. I sat down at the office with Editor-in-Chief John Rennie last week to talk about some of the other offerings in the October issue. You know, John, I am biased because I do get a check from Scientific American. I thought this was a particularly strong issue. Thank you, Steve. Now, let's start with the cover, the uh, the big bounce. I mean, this is just 
You're going to blow people's minds with this. That's right. Well, this is a, a, an article that's about cosmology, um, the origin of the universe. And this one's a lot of fun because it examines uh, one new idea that's been emerging about uh, the model for, for how the universe started and, and that answer to that question of, well, where did it all come from? Uh, we know there was a Big Bang because all the evidence shows that basically the entire universe is expanding all the time. If you, of course, go back in time, what that tells you is that at some point, in theory, everything should have gone back to a, a little singularity, a point where basically all the, all the matter and energy in the universe was crammed down into one infinitesimal point. Here's the problem with that, though. Here's the problem with that. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> the problem is that uh, under general relativity, that's not possible. Because you have a bunch of things, of basically various various numbers in the equation go to infinity, and that should not be possible. So that's always been a problem. Something has to change that. An answer may come from the attempts people are making to try to develop a theory of quantum gravity. Because under one of the models for this, called... Uh, uh, loop quantum gravity. Um, space-time itself almost consists of like, you can think of it as like a little atom of space-time. And one possibility is that when you start to cram everything very close together, when space itself is packed down into a, a small enough point that it, it will, it can't keep shrinking, it can't keep compacting. At some point, uh, the, you've passed a, a maximum energy that you can pack into that space, and it will then start to push everything back out again. So in effect, what that means is gravity, which we normally think of as an attractive force, under those conditions suddenly starts to operate as a, as a repulsive force. And the article uses the sponge analogy. If you have a dry sponge near water, it'll suck up the water. But once the sponge is full, then it, it'll start to repel water. If you try to add in more water, the water will just spill away. Now it's a, it's a more the analogy falls flat a little bit because it's a it's an actual repulsive force rather than just a saturation point. But you you can understand the concept, right? And so what that means is that it, one possibility then is that is that what happens is that our universe is is oscillating in a way that there was a universe that existed before the the one that we know of now on the other side of, uh, of this, this point of max, maximum, uh, uh, density. Um, the, the weird things about that are that, of course, time in, say, this universe and in that preceding universe, um, it, they would have run in opposite directions. So there was never, theoretically, for somebody who is in, say, this universe or in the universe that would have preceded this one, there's never a moment when it all turns around and comes back in. Some, some, uh, listeners may remember the, uh, there was an old cosmological theory about a, about a uh, an oscillating universe where the idea was that uh, the Big Bang sort of threw the universe uh, outward, expanded outward, but at some point gravity would cause everything to slow down and then it would start to collapse again. Um, this is different from that. Uh, that You never have the same kind of collapse. It just means that before the beginning of this universe, there would have been another universe. And uh, what was the beginning of this one was, in a sense, the, the end end of that one from our perspective. But one one man's ceiling is another man's floor. There you go. There's uh, And for those of you who are very uncomfortable with the singularity idea of, of uh, basically an infinite amount of matter and energy in an infinitesimally small uh, point of space, uh, again, this does away with that, and you only have to deal with the concept of the mass of a trillion suns 
in a volume of space the size of a proton. Right. Much easier to get Much your easier to picture and much easier to imagine that that's how things would have worked. So there's that. Then we have a really interesting article. Uh, one of the authors is Tim Berners-Lee, famous webmatician. Well, not the usually referred to as the, the father of the World Wide Web. Father of the World Wide Web. That's about web science. And this is particularly interesting because the web has sort of come into existence and evolved on its own, but now there are properties of it that are emerging that researchers can actually study to find a science of the web. Right. The, the, if you look at the, the web that we have today, it's, it's kind of a self-assembled structure. I mean, the, obviously people were putting it together and there were people who were, who were creating the different elements of that. Uh, but nobody designed a lot of the networks that in fact link different people or different devices or, or different computers to one another. Um, that is something that sort of grew up organically. So uh, in this article, uh, The Web Science Emerges, Tim Berners-Lee and Nigel Shadbolt talk about a movement that's been taking place in uh, in, in recent years to uh, try to establish uh, basically a science of the web, a, a brand Brand new science for studying this networked phenomenon, and in, in effect, it's kind of reverse engineering the World Wide Web that we know and the, the kinds of networks that we see on that to try to figure out how they took shape, and maybe from that we can learn what principles involve how networks do grow, and uh, you know, we might be able to use that sort of thing to be able to develop a, a better systems. For example, being able to to create more efficient networks, and that could be very valuable in industry. Um, there may be a lot of practical applications involving uh, protecting privacy, for example, and stopping people from stealing identities. Um, and it should, you know, it should be just an interesting phenomenon. In a sense, it's like any kind of science. You don't know what benefits might come out of it until you start to do it. One of the things the article talks about is that as the web has grown, you might expect it to have grown exponentially, but if you examine the fabric of it, the, the way nodes connect to other nodes and sites connect to other sites, rather than an exponential growth, it's really a scale-free growth. And I don't think anybody could have expected that. Let's try to explain what that actually means. Yeah, scale-free networks are ones in which if you can look at them at, at, at any scale. You can look at them, say, uh, one little piece or at a larger larger level of magnification, and the level of complexity stays the same at every one of those levels. It's uh, Basically, it's like fractals. There's a scale-free uh, uh, phenomenon for you. Um, it's just, it, it says that there are some kinds of principles at work uh, affecting how a network like this one takes shape and why it probably really is worthwhile for us to study that. As opposed to an exponential growth where you start with a whole bunch of stuff in the middle and then other things build up around that at, at a different kind of, uh, pace, really. Right. Right. That's right. You would, you would, that's probably what most of us would have naively figured you would see when you would look at the structure of, uh, of, of the web and how things grew up because it seems like Things are up online and other things attach themselves and they inspire other, other things. And you might expect that kind of exponential structure. But in fact, you're getting this scale-free structure. And that says there's something interesting about the way that, uh, in effect, information wants to be organized within networks. And it also says that if a chunk of the web goes down, the the rest of the web should still function pretty well. 
Whereas in an exp- exponential system, if a chunk goes down, you may have uh, an- a massive failure of some sort that would completely collapse everything. That's right. Um, obviously, back when they were first constructing the, the, the underpinnings of what preceded the web, the, the old ARPA net, um, that was one of the structural things that they wanted. They wanted to create a communications network uh, for uh, the, the military and for researchers that would be potentially impervious uh, to destruction from, say, nuclear attack. Um, it, would, it, would, it would route itself around any kind of damage to the network. Well, in practice, of course, we've seen that that still happens, um, but it's showing up that same kind of, of, uh, routing itself around damage structure behavior occurs even in, in parts of the web that we wouldn't have expected. Lots of other interesting stuff. We have an article on barcoding life. Right, right. This is a kind of a, a really, really interesting idea. This is a, a, a way of trying to identify species. It's been determined that if you look at a particular about 650 base long piece of the DNA from the mitochondria of various animals, that uh, you can find that the... Those all tend to, uh, from species to species, those vary enough that you can basically read that little chunk and get a sense of whether, uh, of what species an organism belongs to. And um, that's actually a pretty useful thing to be able to do if you're a biologist and you're faced with the problem of trying to identify uh, what species you want to assign an organism to. You know, think of something like a a caterpillar. Obviously, caterpillars look very different from the butterflies that they eventually become, and there are lots of different um, species of butterflies that have caterpillars that look very similar or that look very different. With something like this kind of barcode technique, it could potentially really simplify this kind of aspect of of, uh, field biology and clarify some of the kind of evolutionary relationships you would see. Right. In theory, you could have a handheld device like a glucose meter that a diabetic might use, and you just, you know, take a, a hair off some animal, put it in the device, and you'll get an instant readout based on the analysis of that little DNA section of what species you're looking at. And, you know, take your caterpillar example. That might sound like something that just a woolly-headed field biologist would be interested in. Actually, caterpillars do hundreds of millions of dollars worth of damage to uh, crops and to... Uh, to forests, so this is something that a field biologist might actually find a good use for. Is this a ca- is this caterpillar I'm looking at indicative of an invasion, or is it just a, a harmless thing? Right. There are a lot of very practical applications for being able to track, for example, which types of mosquitoes are carrying a particular disease. Lots of different applications in medicine and agriculture that come out of this. Now, it's still a somewhat controversial idea among biologists, actually. Um, partly because you do have some who are a little bit skeptical about how much can you trust that this one little chunk of DNA is really a good indicator of of species differentiation. Uh, it also works much, much better for animals than it does for plants. Plants have their own complexities about even how you define what constitutes a species in uh, in plants. They, they tend to hybridize much more easily than the animals do. But it's, uh, in any case, a, a useful tool a useful kind of technique, and uh, this article in the October issue uh, gives you some idea of how it works. Lots of good stuff in the October issue. Tell people where can they find the October issue of Scientific American. Steve, you can find the October issue on newsstands everywhere. And we're also available in our entirety. That's right. On 
that World Wide Web we were talking about before. Exactly. You can uh, find the entire issue on www.siam.com or www.scientificamerican.com. Both will work. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, NASA's Mars Phoenix lander has spotted snow falling on Mars. Story two, MBA students were more likely to lie in email than when they wrote using pen and paper. Story three, the federal government has funded almost $5 million to study bear DNA. That's B-E-A-R DNA. Story four, researchers have invented a pill that you add to a tank of gas to increase your mileage by 20%. Time's up. Story one is true. The Mars lander has indeed seen white flakes falling on the red planet. The snow vaporizes, though, before hitting the ground. The lander was designed for a three-month mission on the surface. It's still going in its fifth month. Before the lander's power dies, an onboard microphone will be activated to see if there's any sound, such as a voice saying, I'm going to tell you one last time, there's no standing in the blue zone. Story two is true. A study of MBA students found that they lied more in email than when actually writing. Check out the September 29th 60-second psych podcast for more details. But I will tell you that the experiment tested students who were given money that they then had to split with someone else who they would inform via email or a handwritten note, one or the other. More than 90% of the emailers did lie but only about two-thirds of handwriters lied about the total sum of money. Perhaps another study is in order to find out why, regardless of the medium, you still had a big majority of MBA candidates lying about money. Story three is true. The feds have indeed funded BEAR DNA research, B-E-A-R DNA research, to the tune of almost $5 million over the last five years, which is way more than the $3 million that John McCain keeps bringing up as an example of wasteful government spending. He did so again in the first debate last week. Actually, however, the money is necessary to study the animals and keep their population healthy in accordance with federal law, not to mention that bears undoubtedly pay for themselves. Lots of people pay lots of money at national parks because they're hoping to get a glimpse of Yogi and Boo Boo. For more info, check out the September 28th article on our website called The Real McCain-Obama Debate Over Bear DNA, unless you're Stephen Colbert. All of which means that story four about the pill you add to your gas to up your mileage is, of course, totally bogus. Come on, you've been hearing that one for decades. But what is true is that a researcher at Temple University has created a device that in early testing does appear to boost highway mileage by about 20%. The device produces an electric field near the fuel injector. The field thins out the fuel, which means that the droplets of fuel that get injected into the engine are smaller, which appears to give more efficient and cleaner combustion. The research was published in the American Chemical Society journal Energy and Fuels, which means that other labs will now have the opportunity to replicate and confirm what would appear to be a pretty big deal on the fuel front. Well, that's it for this edition of the Weekly Siam Podcast. Visit Siam.com for all the latest science news, discussions, and today's science trivia. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.